I'm Michael Holly, and you're listening to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Motenko. With me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. Yeah, I got a little cold, so I'm the snotty-nosed kid on the podcast today. Hopefully it's not too audible, but I'm excited, man. I got all the energy in the world after this win. You the Grant Williams, making too much noise, but everybody loves you, but you need that on the team, hitting threes. Let's see. We'll see. We'll see if you're hitting threes. Oh, I'm a little annoying like Grant. And my good friend, Mike Minkoff. I'm going to be... Dropping step backs over Drew Holiday's head like Pin Pritchard, spitting fire, shouting, That's what I do, and Bobby Portis's face. Let's go. That's what I do. That's what he does. We are recording this immediately after the Celtics game seven win against Milwaukee. I know we're not dropping until Tuesday, but we wanted to get on this together and talk about it. So today we're talking about that game seven win. We'll talk about the Milwaukee series as a whole, and we'll look ahead to the Miami series, which will start today. If you're listening to this, the day it drops. Uh, So Mike, let's go to you first. The Celtics win 109 81. They're 25 in and nine in game sevens all time. What a win today. What, tell me what you saw today. Um, I mean, it was phenomenal. (laughs) It was, you know, I, I had a feeling, but I don't really get credit for this, but I'm going to, you know, pretend like I do by saying it on the pod regardless. Earlier today, I had like, I I felt like the game might be like game six of the 2008 finals where it was like, it was kind of sloppy, chippy, messy to start the game. And then eventually the dam just broke. And then you kind of had the whole second half to just celebrate and you know, revel in the fact that the seas were going to yeah. blow out the Lakers by like 40 points. And it was just delicious, but I was not brave enough to actually say that out loud. I didn't want to jinx it uh, because there obviously my thoughts out loud impact the game naturally, as we all know. Um, of course. And I also just wasn't brave enough to do it. Let's, let's be honest, but that is kind of how this game played out. Like the, the bucks, I mean, the first quarter was, a little bit insane. We couldn't do anything quite right on offense. Giannis almost had a triple double in the first quarter. <laughs> All by like, yeah, 10, eight and six, I believe uh, at the end of the first, somehow, despite whatever, everything feeling like it wasn't going our way, uh, at least from where I was sitting on my couch, we were, we ended the first quarter down six and then, we just had so much more resolve, so much more togetherness, so much, you know, we were just a better team and we, we put it all together. We stayed focused. It it was just a tremendous, tremendous game. I love Grant Williams sticking with it through uh, some, you know, some early wide open misses, everything about the game. I just loved it. I I don't know. I I got nothing else, but too much else to say. What what about you, Josh? (laughs) Well, the Celtics are, 
25-9 and nine all-time in Game 7s, 21-5 and five at home. So 75% of the time in Game 7s, we've had home court advantage. If you're looking for more evidence as to why it's important that we won our last game of the season to secure home court advantage for this round and, and not avoiding uh, the Brooklyn Nets, uh, you always want to have home court advantage. Uh, but yeah, this game was uh, kind of memorable. Uh, it felt like a championship series. Um, it kind of reminded me, like you said, Mike, where we got the second half to celebrate of when we beat the Lakers in 2008 and, you know, that kind of final game, game six, I think it was. So it, this this team and this series reminded me of other dynasties that the Celtics have had, you know, from from the players on the team to how we play together to how we've matched up um, in epic physical series like this one against the Milwaukee Bucks. What about you, Adam? Where are you at? How are you feeling right now? Yeah, in terms terms of the game today, Grant Williams. I mean, you can't say enough about him with his three point shooting, his gritty play. I mean, all series, his defense on Giannis, um, scoring the most points, twenty seven of anyone on the Celtics team. Uh, he's making himself some money this off season for sure. Pritchard, he came in the game for, and and first thing I said was he needs to hit some shots today. We I want I want to see that and man. He looked like he was really feeling it. Um, I love the offensive rebounds by him. He was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, just th- this game was was incredible. Um, and and I had no idea how it was going to go, and I felt insecure until like three minutes left. <laughs> but the Celtics shot forty percent from three in this game, and Milwaukee shot twelve percent from three in this game, four for thirty three. To me, that was the the story of this game. If Milwaukee shoots better, they don't lose by twenty-five. Wait, can I? Can yeah, I ask you there guys? was a there was a there was a fifty-four point differential from the three-point line in this game. And Adam, you mentioned two guys, Grant Williams and Peyton Pritchard. I feel like if they don't hit their shots in this game, it does not validate Tatum getting eight or nine assists or whatever he got. You know, penetrating the pass and what we wanted him to do all season long, which is create for others. When the double comes, those two guys, Grant Williams and Peyton Pritchard, are going to be open. And Williams was seven for eighteen from three on thirty nine percent, and and Pritchard also shot the ball well, four for six. What's up, Mike? Yeah, so I, I got a question for you guys while we're talking about Grant Williams. So Kevin O'Connor tweeted shortly after the game. Uh, this might be for you, Josh, specifically. Grant Williams is officially one of the greatest steals of the two thousand nineteen draft. He fell to twenty second, finished game seven with twenty seven points with amazing defense all series on Giannis, who's the best player in the world. Where do you think he goes in a redraft? So, A, do you agree? Is Grant Williams officially one of the greatest deals of the 2019 draft? And for those of you uh, listening that are like me and are not like, you know, in the weeds on the drafts year to year, that's the Zion Williamson, John Morant, RJ Barrett draft top three. That's the draft where we ended up taking Grant Williams instead of potentially taking a guy like Brandon Clark or uh, Matisse Teibel, who we did draft on behalf of the 76ers while moving back two spots, and that allowed us to get my least favorite <laughs> recent Celtic, Carson Edwards. Um, so, Josh, what do you think? Is that is that hyperbolic overreaction in the moment, or is Grant Williams officially one of the greatest steals of that draft? I think when you look at Grant Williams and you think 3 and D guy, he's like a three and take charges guy like the fact that he transitioned into a three-point shooter and he takes 
as many chargers as he does, it really gets in your head. I think that there's a point to that. Obviously, guys picked after him, Jordan Poole, Keldon Johnson, Kevin Porter Jr., Nick Claxton. So there's some other names there, Cody Martin. Eric Pascal. Um, you know, it's, Keldon Johnson, especially. Yeah, there's there's other names. Terrence Mann, right? So J- Jalen McDaniels. You could say Jalen McDaniels is the steal of the draft. You know, like, and, and I think that's going to become more evident in the next couple of years. So anytime you're redrafting, um, where does he fall? Shoot, I would say 10, 11, 12. He's got to be like 10 to 15, right? Somewhere in that range. Yeah, without any analysis, I would say... I would say, yeah, back of the back of the lottery. Tyler Hero's a, on that list too, in terms of the number of spots you'd move up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Tyler Hero's probably top seven, pretty pretty easily. Darius Garland's in that draft. De- DeAndre Hunter's in that draft. So that, I mean, it was a, it was a solid draft through and through. But anyway, just a great, great, great performance. You're right, Josh, by both uh, Williams and Pritchard, and you know they showed up, and guys like Grayson Allen, Wesley Matthews. Um, even Connaughton, who's been really good this series, none of them showed up for the Bucks this game, and <laughs> that's why. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak this question in at you, Adam. I bet you you had a hunch it might ha- it might come. Uh, do you still think the Celtics should have rested their their players the last game of the season? Once we knew, <laughs> it's the same answer. Once we knew that that it was either the Nets or Toronto, I'm fine with what they chose to do. If we could have gotten Chicago or uh, Atlanta, I would have, I would have done it, even if it meant losing this exact game. You mean losing the home court advantage in this exact game? Second round, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Losing home court advantage in this, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of my concern with Brooklyn is how tired is this team going to be after a series against Brooklyn, a se- which I thought was going to go longer. This series against Milwaukee, which we all said was going to go seven games, right? And then uh, Miami is going to be tough too. We'll talk about that in a minute. So. Uh, should the Celtics go beat Miami when they get to the finals, they're going to have a much tougher road than whoever is on the West Coast. All right. I regret asking the question because I yeah. thought you'd answer in a sensible way, but apparently you're just dug in on this. Okay. Let's let's talk more about this series. Uh, who do you think um, shot better from three in the series overall? Percentage-wise? Like Percentage-wise yeah. for the yeah, full yeah. series? Yeah. Are, you about, are you about to tell us that the Milwaukee Bucks had a better percentage? No, they didn't. They shot 29% from three. Celtics shot <laughs> yeah. 42% from three. I, I, like we, we knew coming into this series that Milwaukee was going to defend where they pack the paint. They're going to have Brooke Lopez dropping on, on pick and rolls. They're going to have Giannis um, back there. and he's, he's one of the best defenders in the league. Um, and you knew that we were going to get wide open threes. They were going to challenge us to make them, especially guys like Derek White and um, Marcus Smart, um, definitely Daniel Tice. And um, and they were going to give us... Derek White the, was one for six. They were going to give us the mid-range. Smart, yep. One for six. Yeah, in this game. And, in this game. Yep. And White was um, 30%, 31% for the, the series. Smart actually okay. 39%. We had some good three-point shooting. Tatum, you know, he missed a lot of a lot of shots that we wanted him to make, but 37% from three. Brown I mean, was the last, two, the last two games, he was straight fire from yeah. three. Grant was yeah. up and down, but I mean, clearly up this game, 38% from three. Horford, 39% for, from three. We had some good three-point shooting here. Uh, and, and and it took us a few games, to, and it took Tatum a few games to kind of 
figure out when to be aggressive offensively because he wasn't getting layups as much and he was getting into the the mid-range and then dishing, which I loved. I mean, halfway through the season, that's all we, the three of us really wanted. And then it almost was like he was overpassing, trying to set up guys instead of taking more mid-range shots, which I felt like he, he uh, shifted a bit as the series went along. What do you guys feel like this, and Mike, starting with you, what, what does this mean, this Game 7 win for this team and for Tatum in terms of like this season and their legacy going forward? I mean, I think that the it's too early to say, to be honest. If you're talking about legacy, to me, it's too early to say. It means it's great. I, I think this is arguably the best team this core has beaten so far in the in their careers um i i feel pretty good about that right like those eastern conference runs like it's you know i mean they beat a younger Giannis and and the teams built around him they beat younger Embiid and the, and uh, the Embiid simmons jj reddick squads um but they they you know every time they came up against yeah every every time they came up against lebron they they couldn't get over that hump and, you know, Giannis and, and LeBron are obviously different players, but this is the first time that they went against, I mean, whether you want to call it Durant or uh, say it's Durant or say it's Giannis, you know, this team has gone through the best players in the world. Uh, one, you know, pretty much everybody's one and two. So that I think is relevant, but this Heat team is nothing to sneeze at. Um, they are, they are mentally tough they are gritty they are deeper uh and more resilient well maybe not more resilient but they're deeper and and kind of have more ways that they can try to beat you than this milwaukee team even though milwaukee has the best player of of arguably all three teams um so to me it doesn't mean a ton for tatum's legacy if we don't get past the heat if we get past the heat, it's a big, it, it means a lot. And it's kind of weird how legacies work that way, but at least yeah. that's how I see it. What about you, Josh? Do you yeah, agree we'll, with that? We'll get to the Miami. Josh, what do you think about this team and, and Tatum legacy-wise? Um, I think you're seeing the beginning of a dynasty. I know it's way too early to be saying wow, that. Wow, man. So I don't, and I don't mind uh, sounding stupid on this podcast and being, you know, calling it like that. Uh, I'm not concerned about a jinx. There's too much about this team that reminds me of former Celtic dynasties, specifically with their defense and their ball movement and, and just ability to make the right play and share the ball and make the right decisions and, and play winning basketball. I mean, just the number of guys. We don't just have Marcus Smart who's going to take a charge and potentially steal a, a defensive possession um, or a guy who steals several possessions throughout the course of a playoff game. We, we got three of those dudes. We got guys like Grant Williams and Horford, Derek White, got four of those dudes so there's there's just a, a willingness from our stars to mature there it's like everything just feels like it's trending upwards even in devastating losses uh when we should have won those games like game five so i think you're seeing tatum um taking it personally when going up against kd Giannis. Uh, and then next series, what it's it's bam and butler and and like those guys are not as scary as kd and Giannis, um, you know, just from a one-on-one -on -one perspective or a mano-a-mano -a -mano perspective. So to me, this is the beginning of the dynasty. Um, and I don't know, I'm not going to call a certain number of championships or anything like that, 
But I will say this team has the potential to win this championship. I don't think this Miami Heat series is going to be as difficult as the Milwaukee Bucks series. Um, I don't think it's going to be as easy as the Brooklyn Nets series either. Uh, and, and I just think that this is the beginning of greatness that you're seeing, and I don't mind calling it right now. Are you stunned? Are you stunned, speechless, Adam? Yeah, I'm like, we <laughs> should react to this, and I don't know what to say. What you got to say exactly? No, I look, Josh. I've had moments. I, I, I won't. I'm not. I'm not ready to declare it because I, I want to see it. Like, I think this, this team is showing. You know, they've got kind of chest on their hair in a way that they they didn't in um, that 2020 run in the bubble. You know, they they were gritty. They yeah. they kind of were able to to grind it out against Toronto in the seven game series. But the way their offense really broke broke down into kind of very selfish tendencies in the highest leverage moments was prevalent throughout both that Toronto series and then definitely uh, against the Heat. And there's lots and lots of signs that we've seen over the course of this series in particular, but even against the Nets uh, and, and over the past four months that, you know, Ime's gotten, gotten these guys to, to buy in and elevate uh, the, their ability to, to stay unselfish, even in these higher pressure moments, um, in a way that I think, you know, I agree could, could really be the beginning of something truly special, not just for this year, but for years to come. Um, all of that said, I need to see them get through Miami and get through, you know, one of three pretty fearsome teams over in the Western conference before I'm ready to start talking about dynasties. But I, I, you know, I think I also said, I don't know, a month or two ago, maybe it was on the pod with just Adam. I think Josh, you may not have been on that one that I, you know, I could see the Celtics entering next year as like the favorites to win it all. Um, in regardless of how this season played out, just to, based on the growth of the towards the end of the season. So I'm kind of and, conflicted in the what I'm willing to stand on here. Uh, and so I, I don't I don't think what you're saying is a wild, crazy thing. I'm just not quite ready to declare it as loudly as you. The idea that the Celtics are the beginning of a dynasty here could easily also be argued by a Milwaukee Bucks podcasting or a podcaster or fan saying, you know, that they won a championship. Middleton. Saying that they or won that a this championship would have been <laughs> with Middleton. Like, I, like next year going up against this team with Middleton is is a scary thought. Yeah, and they've won a championship. The Celtics have won nothing yet. You can't say they're a, like, can we win a championship before you start talking dynasty? Like, the Celtics could have easily lost this series, and then they're looking at, at themselves in the mirror, going, "We don't have enough." And Brad Stevens is going, I, "Like, we need more here. I need to make some changes." And that this similar thing type of thing could happen if they lose to Miami, depending on how that goes. Um, and even if um, they beat Miami and then lose in the finals, like they're they're an up and coming team that has some potential. Uh, but there's a lot of great players that are not in good situations coming into these playoffs or not even in the playoffs. So to start talking dynasty is wild to me. It, wild. There is so the- there is one other thing I think this that that I do think this win means and i don't i i I say this with a little hesitation because i actually don't think it's necessarily it would have flipped on its head if they had lost this game but i think this this win means this season no matter what happens from here is like a resounding success Mm. because i do i do think 
I mean, I think losing to Milwaukee, even without Middleton, like Giannis's greatness is insane. What he was able to do, basically having no other reliable offensive player, no one he could consistently kick it out to that would like scare the Celtics into undisciplined rotations. No one that could generate points reliably out of isolation when, when things got really tight the way we know Middleton can, um, that he took, I, I think Adam, Adam Himmelsbach had a, had a tweet basically like a testament to his greatness with that. He, he went toe to toe and almost grinded out a seven game victory over what had clearly been the hottest team in the NBA since January, since the turn of the calendar. So like, it's just amazing what Giannis has did. Um, but I think getting through this series means like Udoka, obviously he's legit Tatum and Brown. I think, I think we can feel really comfortable. Uh, I can feel really comfortable at minimum that they've, that they've gone up a level as far as their ability to, you know, meet the moment in the, in these types of moments. And it gives me a lot of confidence going into the next series against Miami because, you know, I don't think it's the same. They're the same players that got kind of suffocated by that Miami zone and the Miami defense in the bubble. Um, But I think even if they struggle, like that's a phenomenal Miami team with phenomenal players and a phenomenal coach that has home court advantage. Like if they lose in the Eastern conference final, this, this is still a successful season. Now's a good time to acknowledge Milwaukee, I think. Like, Giannis is unbelievable. If he's not the best player in the world, I'm not quite sure who is. Uh, Drew Holiday played phenomenal. He's really good. He's He might be the best on-ball defender in the NBA. He was eighth in Defensive Player of the Year this year. Uh, so he's definitely in that conversation. And they've got some good role players. They definitely missed Middleton. But what a tough, tough team. Josh, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, the... You only need to look no further than the body language of Jason Tatum to to see the development of this dynasty coming to fruition. Like the difference between good to great players is mentality and the difference between great to legend is mentality. Like we all watched the last dance. We all know what it take what it took for Jordan to win. We all know that Kobe Bryant stole that mentality and labeled it the Mamba mentality. And we all know that all these NBA players are studying that in an era when it's so easy to find NBA players and you know greats and all-stars who don't change their mentality and aren't just aren't able to change their emotional reaction to things. And when you look at Jason Tatum in game six, specifically against the Bucks, he had a different kind of focus on his face. You know, he 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 was not wincing, complaining, whiny Jason Tatum who doesn't get back on D when the ref makes a bad call. He was fully focused, serious the whole game, and you could see it in his body language, in his facial expression, and in his reactions to everything. Even in the game today, in game seven, when he was out for the majority of the third quarter, you know, because of foul trouble, like he didn't once get a tee and overreact and go beyond the line. He's more often the guy who's composed emotionally. And you're seeing his team win and his, I mean, penetrating to pass the way he does like he's playing the right way and his focus and mentality is shifting before our eyes as he matures that's what the greats always have done josh i'm glad you brought that up i because I, I 
I'm really frustrated with Tatum. Uh, I'm sick and tired of watching him dog it on defense because he's either yelling at the ref or his head is out of the game because he missed a shot, whether he was fouled or not. I saw it in this game. I saw it definitely in game six. It was worse earlier, but it drives me crazy. And I'm like, I don't know what needs to happen to get him to change. And I don't know how I should be uh, receiving that, but I'm I just, I'm like, grow up. Like we need, we need that maturity. That Adam, that's funny that that you describe that because that's how I feel every time I hear you complain about Jason Tatum. <laughs> that's like yeah. exactly. I'm like, grow up, Adam. Like this dude just took this team to the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, <laughs> I don't understand it. Like he yeah, that's, that's how lights we... out in Game Six. He had a phenomenal game in Game Seven, not forcing the issue. He also got hit by a couple of frustrating calls. I, I mean, he's he's definitely imperfect there, but I, I still find it. It's just about um, seeing the I potential. find it just as amazing uh, your how much this sticks in your craw the way you find it amazing how much these these refs uh, get in, in Tatum's head sometimes. Well, it's just it, his potential is just so high and it's it's easy to see what what he could be and and so easy to want him to be, to get there because he's so talented and he's so good at um, growing, at developing. Uh, he he adds to his game in the off season in dramatic ways. He adds to his game during the season in dramatic ways. These are things that that are really unique, um, and so it's it, it's just about wanting him to to get there uh, and feeling attached to that. I, in all seriousness, I kind of felt so. Hey, I do think he's grown and got a lot better in this, like from where he was a few years ago and even oh last God, season. Yeah. Like I think he's way better, right? Way. So so there's that. I also feel like I know I felt and I try, I mean, I try really hard to never complain about the refs um, because it does drive me crazy. (laughs) Like I really don't like it. Um, And I feel like I felt myself as a fan getting more frustrated with the refs in in particular, like the juxtaposition between Giannis plays super physically. He's very difficult to legislate, but I also feel like he does get a really beneficial whistle. If I was Jason Tatum, I'd be like, okay, maybe he's number, maybe that guy over there is number one in the NBA, but I'm like number five. Like, can I get a pretty favorable whistle too? You could say number seven, Mike, because he was seventh in MVP voting this year. um, No, I'm going to say number five. Okay. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think I just, I don't, I, I think that would probably drive me bonkers if I were him too. And, and like getting, you know, getting those 50, 50 calls going against him when they seem to always go in Giannis's favor um, would probably drive me crazy. That drives me equally crazy, Mike. <laughs> the game seven started out by, yeah, by the game seven started out by Grant Williams taking an easy charge call on Giannis and they didn't make any call at all. Let Giannis just score the layup. And, and it kind of continued of, the refs controlling the game without um, by not calling a lot, you know? And so how did we respond to that? Like the bucks went on a eight Oh run in the first quarter and on offense, we had guys that were not named Tatum and Brown touching the ball a lot and getting a lot of shots up during that run. Uh, also coincident, coincidentally during uh, when the refs weren't calling a whole lot. And so we kind of thought, and I think it's common to think we got to take this game into our own hands. If the refs aren't calling anything, but I think what we learned throughout the game and what we showed is that we got to get our, our two guys who need to touch the ball every possession more touches, uh, especially when there's momentum shifts away from us. I think you know who those guys are. Um, and that showed throughout the game 
you know, that was a testament to our resiliency. The potential for resiliency is about the decisions that not only Tatum makes, but the other guys when Milwaukee's going on a run. Uh, but hopefully this is the last of the of a as physical a series as we'll see, which means that the refs will be as important. Uh, hopefully that won't be the case in this series against Miami. Yeah, I'm hopeful of that too, Josh. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like it shouldn't be this physical, mostly because Giannis won't be there. And I was as annoyed at as at the refs as any other Celtics fan. I was right there with the ones that were losing their their self because of it, and um, and both because it just seemed like they were bad going both ways and it, it, the series became about the refs and not about the players um, but also because there were a lot of calls especially related to Giannis where it just felt like it was in Milwaukee's favor and I'm sure Milwaukee fans feel the same way about their team um, in certain ways uh, and I agree with you Mike that if I were Tatum I'd be livid about that difference in treatment also and I know Mike doesn't want to talk about the refs so that's all I will say about that but in terms of future um series Josh Miami is so intense that uh I wonder about the refs role in that series too um and I wonder about Tatum's role in that series too before we get to that I got a couple of other questions I want to talk about Jalen Brown a little bit in the series because I mean his stats look fine uh and and I just I felt like he didn't quite bring it in the way that I would expect him to based on his regular season and the past few seasons as like the second star. He very clearly, like, I don't think he was the second or even third best player for the Celtics in this series. I would say that that went to Horford and smart and, and maybe even, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd have to grant was right there with him. So uh, I'm curious about what you guys thought about Jalen and, and, I don't know. I want to fit in the, a conversation about his dribbling and handle and turnovers, but I don't. It's just that's just <laughs> another thing that drives me crazy. You just, yeah, you just want to complain about him losing the ball in critical moments uh, and, so and being ahead, able to find that. teammates too. Uh, but, I mean, three turnovers a game was not actually that bad. I mean, I think that what is so amazing about this this team is that it really is a team. And this is, I mean, this goes back, Adam, to the conversation about do we have enough stars to win it all versus like, do you have the right top level talent with the complementary depth and kind of that that really fits together and, and with the, the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and I think we have the latter and I think the latter is better. Um, you know, we beat a very star heavy duo in, in KD and Kyrie. Now we beat like a, a top tier star with kind of a third tier star in Drew Holiday, um, with not great depth, to be honest, with, without, without, um, Middleton healthy in the bucks, but Jalen Brown is an elite play finisher, an elite scorer. And I, I don't, I don't have exactly what he averaged, but it's something like 20, I'm guessing 22, 23 points a game. 22. For the series, right? Yeah. yeah so uh, seven rebounds, um, four assists. Yeah. So that, I mean, that Milwaukee team's no slouch and those 22 points a game were really, really important. Um, and nobody else was doing that. Nobody else was giving us that consistent scoring. Just having a guy that can consistently score at 20 points plus per game a reasonable efficiency without without i mean a he's not a defensive liability at all even though they hunted him to try to get him matched up against Giannis. like he, he held his own in a couple one-on-one matchups this game against Giannis. 
Um, and he, he played within the team defense really effectively. But then you have guys like Horford that brings a different defensive versatility or smart that kind of a, a do everything. Um, and he had an amazing series uh, um, with only a few like, no, why did you take that early threes over the course of the seven games? Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I think I think Jalen did exactly what we want Jalen to do. He he does over dribble sometimes, but he actually did, I thought, a pretty good job of not doing that too much in aggregate. And, and, you know, fighting against some of his tendencies to push, put his head down and try to just go through everybody with a, with a loose handle that that's what led to a lot of turnovers and some of our losses. He, I thought he kept that really well holstered, especially the last couple of games. Yeah. When you're coaching Jalen Brown, you're saying things to him. Like we love the fact that you're always in attack mode and you're always putting pressure on the other team. But we got to make sure that in certain situations that you stop, you come to a stop on your drives, you kick the ball back out, or you know time and score, possession, and all that stuff, right? But if you're analyzing him from a podcaster or media perspective, you have to keep in mind what he's doing to the other team from a mentality perspective. When he's in attack mode all game long, whether you're Grayson Allen or Giannis trying not to pick up another foul, like in, in the open court on a fast break, he's taking it right at you. And, and he's not letting up. And to have, you know, you don't want Marcus Smart doing that. You don't want Derek White doing that. But someone who's 6'7", 230, you know, Paul Pierce-sized dude like Jalen Brown, it, that, that just puts so much pressure on the other team, even if Chris Middleton's in the game, you know? So, Adam, I, I encourage you to remember that part of, of it, like what he does to the other team by being in attack mode all Yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Um. Last thing I want to say about this series is, uh, well, I wasn't sure when it happened, but the Al Horford trade was obviously clearly worth it. I don't care what Alper and Singun does in his career. I'm glad that trade happened. Adam, can we revisit the trade for Derek White? He's had a couple big moments in the last couple of games. I know you're still upset about the future pick. Uh, is that looking any better to you? I mean, here's how this conversation goes. Adam, I say uh, it's, that future pick is a big deal. You don't give that up. And then Mike says, We're, it's a swap. It's not an actual pick. And I, that's to me, that's undervaluing it. Jason Tatum was a pick swap also. So uh, I don't think we need to have that conversation again. So the answer, Josh, is his mind has not changed. No, but has the needle shifted at all for you, Adam? That's it. I don't need to rebuttal. Even though Derek White led the team in plus minus in this series, 9.7, uh, I think Derek White's a good player and, and I like him on this team and I thought we gave up a lot for him more than I really hoped that we would. And time will tell, as I said, when it yeah, happened, okay. time will tell. I mean, he could be a starter for this team in the future and, and they, and they could have a dynasty, Josh. So uh, who knows? Would we be in this position? Do you think we would be in this position if we had not made that trade? Probably not. Uh, and this position, like time, this position like, being going to the Eastern Conference Finals with an absolutely elite defense. Yeah, I mean, and, look, if, if we win a, the championship, of eight guys it. that we really trust. If we win the championship, that does a lot. Like time will tell this season about whether that trade was worth it or not. So, um, but we can revisit this <laughs> every podcast if you guys want going forward. I don't think we need to talk more about it now. I'm curious. Anything else on Milwaukee before we get to Miami? Um, let's bring on the heat. So Josh, uh, 
we start on Tuesday. It, we play every other day against Miami, 8.30 p.m. every game, starting in Miami, two there, two in Boston, and then switching off. What are you seeing in terms of head-to-head matchups with Miami? Yeah, so a little history. The Celtics are 2-1 and one this year versus Miami. Head-to-head in the last 15 years, the Celtics have had two eight-game win streaks across multiple years. One six-game win streak versus Miami. The Heat have only won three in a row against us, even during the LeBron era. Um, this year, the Celtics and Heat have almost identical records at home and on the road uh, versus the East and versus the West and in general during the regular season. Um, they've got almost identical points per game, rebounds per game, assists per game, steals per game, uh, all shooting percentages almost identical. The Celtics have a little bit of an advantage in the blocks per game, six versus three. But you're looking at like two grinded out teams that are pretty identical. They play together. They're really detailed. They use winning plays to beat uh, teams with more talent. Um, and they're going to throw all their junk zones against us, including the one three one that was effective against James Harden. In the playoffs, uh, the Celtics have proven that a simple zone isn't going to beat them like it has, you know, I would say four out of the last five years. Um, but I'm sure we're going to get tested by that. A lot of switching junky gimmick zones um, and different defenses. And then, you know, they've got some players who are really tough to, to match up against. When I hear you say talk about zone, Josh, I think three-point shooting matters. Uh, do you think that this will also be a sort of make-miss series? If the Celtics shoot well from three, they should do well? Yeah, but last series was clearly we can shoot threes. The other team isn't good with it, at that, with especially with Middleton out. And against the Heat, like I said, you know, during the regular season, they are almost identical in three-point percentage. And they've got several specialists, um, just like us, you know, like they're – their star players are going to be driving and kicking like Bam and Butler to guys who are role players who need to knock those shots down and can do that at a high clip. So it's not it's not a clear advantage for us going into this series because the other team can do the same thing. Mike, Jimmy Butler's averaging 29 points per game in the playoffs this season so far, uh, 25 per. He's playing phenomenally well. Tyler Hero's been playing great coming off the bench. Uh, Bam is a problem uh, for the Celtics, always has been. And... He's upset about not getting uh, Defensive Player of the Year this year. Uh, Oladipo's been playing well for them. P.J. Tucker's on that team. He's super tough. Max Struess against his old team. Josh's guy. Uh, Kyle Lowry is you know, day-to-day. Uh, he missed practice uh, on today. Sunday. Yep. Um, yeah. But I, I'm guessing he'll be good to go, uh, if not in the beginning, then at game two or three. Um, and I think he's a huge impact player on this team. What, what are you looking out for with the Heat? Well, yeah. So, I mean, before the playoffs, I I very, very reluctantly said um, that I thought the Heat would beat the Celtics in seven. That was predicated on them having a healthy Kyle Lowry, who I think does a lot of things that are really disruptive for a couple of our guys, especially especially someone like uh, Jalen Brown, because Lowry is able, he's got um, kind of the same wiring that a guy like Draymond Green has. He's able to play really, really fast and really, really effectively and very, very grifty. Yeah. Right. Um, but he, he gets up in the ball on defense. He pushes the pace on offense. He, he just kind of changes the speed with which players are thinking on the other team and forces them into mistakes. Um, and, and like controls the game by doing that, even when he's not like putting up raw statistics, he, he's 
deeply influencing the way the game is being played in a way that favors him and his intelligence and his skills. Um, if he's not healthy, I, I think it changes the game dramatically. But when you're talking about a guy like Jimmy Butler, like all I can think of is, I mean, Marcus Smart was literally just defending Giannis like straight up very effectively. He's probably going to feel like just a deep relief going against Jimmy Butler. He's going to be like, this is so much easier. Like if Grant Williams is getting, having Jimmy Butler run into his chest instead of Giannis, that's got to feel like a pillow. Um, so I'm not actually, I, I don't think Jimmy Butler, I think this is a bad series matchup for Jimmy Butler. Like he was going up against um, last round. I don't know who, who Tobias Harris, uh, Tybal couldn't stay on the court. Um, like who could they throw at him defensively on the perimeter? I can't even remember who the heat played in the first, first round. They, uh, yeah. they dismantled them so quickly. So, um, I'm not, I'm, I mean, Jimmy Butler's a, a heck of a player. Like I'm not ignoring him, but I don't, I don't think he's going to be able to force his will on the game at the, the same way that the guy we just played did. And then for Bam, I agree. He has always given us trouble. Um, but this is this is the series for Rob Williams. This is the series we need a healthy Rob Williams more than the other the last two by far. Like Bam absolutely annihilated Daniel Tice the, the last time they went head to head. I think Tice, if if he's called into kind of you know five to fifteen minutes in a game on the bench, uh, is can still be counted upon to do that. I thought he did a really really good job, especially the last three games of the series. Um, but Robert Williams is, is the guy that can kind of neutralize Bam's impact. I think he can, he can pull Bam to the hoop instead of letting Bam switch effectively because if Bam goes out on switches then we're going to be able to get it over the top of their defense. Um, and if, if Bam stays then we're going to get outside shots, uh, on the other end, Bam just isn't going to be able to go over and through a Rob Williams the same way he's going to be able to do that with. Tice or go over Grant Williams. Um, and I think his speed and athleticism is enough to give uh, even Al trouble. So um, if we have a healthy Rob and by all accounts, he could play today. He was just being kept out because, you know, it was game seven. Um, and if Lowry is not fully healthy for uh, even just one to two games, I think that that tips the needle in a pretty significant yeah. way in the series. Yeah, that Rob injury is is my biggest concern with the series. Uh Ime keeps talking about he's going to he'll play when he's 100% and not before that. Um and at what point? I'm kind of like at what point in the playoffs do you expect that to be a little bit different? Uh is it worth the risk uh of um I don't know I don't even know if there is risk of long-term injury because it sounds like it's unrelated to his surgery. It's just uh a pain tolerance thing. Uh, um I can't even remember if the swe- if it's a swelling related thing or or that's but it's like bone bruise I think um on a play when Giannis ran into him. Um either way, if Rob Williams plays or not, that's a huge huge piece for the Celtics and and it's not just whether he plays or not, it's what kind of Rob Williams you get because in this Buck series we missed the real Rob Williams. He he uh was not himself. He was you know, he, he's an unbelievable athlete, so it's it's hard to forget how incredible he is because when he's 
playing at 80%, like it felt like he was in this Buck series, he still looks athletic, like a normal high level athlete in the NBA. But um, for him to play that free safety role, for him to help on BAM, uh, I, we need like the real Rob Williams. Um, and so, and so Adam, Josh, I'm wondering, like, would you, if let's say he's out, would you play Horford? Would you like mirror Horford and Bam's minutes? Um, yeah, I would just like Giannis. Yeah, I would. I think it's the same as going up against Milwaukee without Robert Williams. You, we know we can win. We know we did win that series without Robert Williams. And I think that we can win the series against Miami without Robert Williams too, especially if Kyle Lowry is also as banged up as he has been over the last month. Um, and I think Mike made a really good point. I, I agree with Mike that the Lowry injury is actually more worrisome for Miami than the Rob Williams injury is for Boston. So as concerned as you are, Adam, I'm more concerned for Miami fans on behalf of Kyle Lowry. Um, he hasn't played since Sunday, May 8th. Right, so he's had nine days off. Miami won the last two games against Philly without him, um, but he hasn't really been himself since you know end of March, early April when he turned 36. He's been hampered by the left hamstring, you know, averaging 30 minutes per game. But like, listen to these stat lines from his last few games: um, May a 30 minutes, six points, seven assists. So he's helping him there, but he's hobbled. Uh, the Friday before that, 25 minutes, zero points, three assists. Game before that, 23 minutes. Six points, five assists. 37 minutes, nine points, two assists. 10 points, nine assists. So I mean, he hasn't scored over 10 points per game since early April. Like, hasn't really been himself since then. Um, that's really concerning to me, especially with a hamstring injury for a guy that age. We, we know what happened with Chris Paul a couple of years ago with his hamstring. Like, the, those are tough when you're that age. Um, so I think that honestly trumps the Rob Williams concerns at this point. I think those the BAM minutes are the most important to, to handle. Mike, I wonder if, if we're playing uh, Grant Williams and Horford and we're stretching BAM out to the three-point line, I'm wondering uh, the impact that that has on his switching and, and his, his defensive impact. I mean, it, again, I think I think this is one where like BAM can can hedge and recover. Like he can do all of that stuff, right? He can he can he can drop and get out to a shoot shooter or cheat in off the weak side and get out on rotation if he needs to. Um, his speed and athleticism and and just um, intensity and and hustle is is all elite. So I'm I don't think we can just like stretch him in out of kind of a comfort zone and you know I, I think I'm also just deeply scarred by that amazing painful block he had of Jason Tatum. Um, I don't remember which game that was in the series game two, maybe um, uh, in 2020, but that was, you know, one of the most amazing blocks I can recall seeing um, uh, in, in, in an NBA game period. Um, So, you know, but that's why, again, I do, I do think Rob helps a lot because, Rob forces the defense to cheat down and there's no one else. I mean, they're not playing your seven, uh, who's their only other, or, I mean, they've got Deadman. I think Rob can pretty easily go over the top of Dwayne Deadman. So, yeah. And, and then they got PJ Tucker. Right. And, and we, uh, what I'm, I am really looking forward to the, the yeah. Grant Williams, PJ Tucker, <laughs> like whatever, like, um, 
I don't I don't even know what to like fire hydrant off <laughs> like three point shooting fire yeah. hydrant face off like it's going to be all time that both of them are going to be missing four teeth and like have uh, a black eye by the end of game three. It's going to be delightful. Those guys are 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 two of a feather. So is this a series we go small and maybe play white more than 26 minutes a game? Maybe starting him potentially? Bringing Grant off the bench, especially if Rob Williams can't play? I think that's the trend already with Williams being in and out, is that White has had taken more of a prominent role, especially in closing lineups. I think that you're going to continue to see that against the Heat, um, especially with guys like Hero, that we, we really need secondary and third defenders uh, out there who can handle their guards. Even Oladipo is no slouch. So I, I think defending the three-point line is so much more important that Derek White now is crucial. Uh, whereas maybe Tice was more crucial last series. Yeah, I agree that um, White. I, I, so I do think I do think we're gonna see Rob starting Game One. That really? would be my guess. Yeah. Why? I mean, he because he was available to play today. Like I think he's healthy. Oh, I didn't realize I, that. He yeah, was yeah, he was available. Play? He was available to play, but I think I mean, Emu yeah. was like, "We'll use him if needed." Oh, wow. And and that's what I had been saying in the lead up. I, I had a couple of tweets being basically like. I wouldn't want us to play Rob unless there was like really serious foul trouble because um, just coming in pretty much, you know, with over a week off or a week off or so without having, you know, just coming into a game seven in in this series as intense as it's been, I wouldn't trust Rob's timing. I wouldn't trust kind of that. I just don't think that that puts him in a good spot. And Tice has been playing well as have, Al and and Grant. So um this that choice made sense to me, but I I think against Miami, Rob, what Rob brings is going to be really really important. And so I would I would start him. Um I do agree. I mean I think all of Tice, Grant and um Derek White are going to be really important cuz they're all really heady basketball players that are going to be really effective against things like zones. Right, they know how to cut quickly, flash into the paint, yeah. grab, get the ball, move the ball right away, move to the other side of the court, and do it over and over again if they need to. So I think I think this team, the way this team plays, is so different. Even though there's a big overlap in some of the in the players that we have on it, uh, than that team that lost to the Heat in in 2020 in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm the more I, the more. The more I'm talking about it, the more confident I'm feeling about the series. But yeah, don't think for a second that these players have forgotten about that series in the bubble against the Miami Heat in 2020. That taste is still in our mouths, and I'm you know I'm sure that not only Ime Udoka but Brad Stevens is bringing that up to guys, and and it's this is a personal matchup for us. Josh, was there more you wanted to share about your boy Max Struess, uh, who you didn't, never wanted the Celtics to cut, or Oladipo, or anyone else on Miami? Yeah, um, people are finally starting to talk about how good Max Struess is, and you know he's completely taken Duncan Robinson's spot in that lineup, making Robinson's ninety million dollar contract look uh, pretty bad at this point. He obviously had the twenty seven point game. <laughs> Struess. Had the 27-point game against the Celtics in January on a very Grant Williams-like 9 of 17 shooting from three. So we know he can light it up. He's had a couple 40-minute games in the playoffs, averaging 30 minutes a game, 12 points per game. So, you know, he's not their best player. Uh, is he better than Javante Green would be on that team? Sure. 
Um, but it's it's another storyline I think that's pretty cool for this series where that makes it personal. You know, we've had guys like Taco Fall uh, come back and be fans in the stands during the playoffs uh, who are on that same team with Max Struess. It's kind of cool to see Struess as a prominent player in heat culture coming back into the Boston Garden as a player. And I think uh, regarding Oladipo, he, he's averaging 11 points per game. He ended the season with a couple 30-point games, so um, his confidence is back. You know, he's not lighting it up from three-point land, um, so he's still the same kind of Oladipo player, very similar to Jimmy Butler, a guy who can take over a game but not necessarily hit a bunch of threes. Um, but, you know, it's just another guard that they have on their roster who's got playoff experience. Um, so... I mean, I, I predicted Miami to be the third best team in the league at the beginning of the season because I thought Lowry was going to be a huge boost for them, especially come playoff time. I thought Oladipo was finally going to get healthy too. And both of those things have come true. It's just that Lowry's, you know, not necessarily ready to go or, or playing like the Kyle Lowry that would make the kind of impact he could make. So uh, I'm, I'm just crossing my fingers about that. I think the Celtics can beat this team regardless but it's going to be really interesting if Kyle Lowry does play really well Um, and he's another guy just like us who will be in your head just from the fact that he's going to step up and take a charge and transition when you don't even have the ball or when you drive it into the lane under the hoop you know he's going to sacrifice his body no matter how banged up he is to to play ball the right way and and that's just hard to play against as as you could see from watching Milwaukee lose to the Celtics and he's He's an absolute gamer, and yeah. like so is Jimmy Butler, and so is Bam Adebayo. But I mean, you know, didn't he have like he had like a twenty-seven point first half or something in that clinching game six of the the twenty nineteen finals? Like he he came out completely on fire um, to start that game. He's just he's 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 been there, done that. He's had such a such a kind of ride of a career, and has kind of come out the top and on the other side and is just an absolutely phenomenal player. So I've got a ton of respect and, and healthy fear of Kyle Lowry uh, in these types of contexts. And yeah, it's just a really big deal if he's not able to go at a hundred percent. Same. And my last thought on, on all of this that with, with Rob Williams, part of the need for him is that Al Horford typically struggles uh, when he's playing definitely back to backs, but also, playing every other day, which will happen in this series. And and that's one of the things that is so impressive about his run so far in the playoffs, 39 minutes a game against Milwaukee. Uh, a few of those games, he had three plus uh, days of rest in between. Um, so I, I think that's important, especially coming off this grueling win against M- Miami and against Giannis. Uh, let's move to predictions about this next series. So I want to hear from each of you. We'll each share uh, who we think will win and in how many games. And while you're thinking about that, I'll remind you guys that Josh had Boston over Miami in six. Mike had Boston, um, actually Miami in seven uh, over Boston. And I had... Um, you had Boston over Miami in yeah, seven, in, I believe. In, um, what do you guys think for this time? Same. Boston over Miami in six. I, I'm joining you guys, uh, and especially with the with the Lowry injury. Um, it, it looks like he's not going to be playing game one. I, I put it as unlikely he's going to be at 100% in the first few games of the series. Um, and 
this Boston team is uh, pretty impressive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use that new information and and change my change my prediction. I actually had Boston in seven. I'm gonna stick to that uh, only because, like you said, Mike, Boston does not have home court advantage here, uh, and I'd be very happy if I was wrong about that. And you guys were right. Uh, but this Miami team is this is Miami is the toughest team in the Eastern Conference. I think. Yeah, they were the one uh, seed for a reason. Let's see if Boston can <laughs> take that that champion. And yep, I can't totally. let this podcast end without mentioning the name of Eric Spolstra. Like I think Udoka is up to the challenge, but will be challenged by you know top five coach in the NBA and Eric Spolstra. Um, so he's going to throw a lot of different changes at us and adaptations at this team. Um, whether it's after a timeout or after halftime, like we need to prepare for a lot of different scenarios in this matchup. Um, and that's a big part of, of, of winning a series like this in the playoffs is the coaching matchup. So um, would you say we're outcoached in this game, Udoka versus Spolstra? I'll say this, Josh. Um, Eric Spolstra was number three in coach of the year this year, 72 votes. Ime Udoka, number <laughs> four, 46 votes. So it's neck and neck. According to whoever votes for the coach of the year, is that is that no. other coaches? No, the other coaches vote for. There's like a whatever the the coaches association where they they coach they yeah. they vote. But um, I actually have no idea who votes for. I think it's executives. I'm not sure. Um, then it, yeah, or a, it would probably be a media or a mix of of multiple. I sources. I think Anyhow, Mike. I mean. Eric Spolstra is arguably the best coach in the NBA, um, but Ime is a phenomenal coach and he's got these players playing. And I think this staff has proven that they are making really sharp adjustments uh, and, and really quickly and the, the players are bought in. So I think Udoka will be up to the challenge. Um, I, I think you have to give Spolstra a slight edge uh, just be, just out of respect for all he's accomplished. But I, I don't think it's going to be uh, a bloodbath uh, as far as a, a, us getting outmatched on the coaching front. I think Udoka will be right right there. I am both exhausted from this Milwaukee series and excited for Miami. Josh, final yeah, thought? Yeah, well, two final thoughts. Uh, unless we have an emergency pod, you're not going to hear our voices until the end of game four in Boston. Uh, that's how quickly this series is, is going with games every other day. Um, and I want to give a final shout out to Marcus Smart. The fall that he had at the beginning of game seven where he unintentionally was undercut by Giannis and then came down and hit his shoulder, chest, and face on the ground, and his whole body just bounced up three inches before hitting the ground again. And this dude gets up, you know, blinking like he's has got a concussion and uh, waving off Coach Udoka, like, don't take me out, Coach. I'm staying in this one. Like, is he the toughest guy in all of sports? When you're thinking of, like, okay, I'm a hockey fan or I'm a – football fan like who's the toughest guy in those sports marcus smart has to be in that conversation of toughest guy in all of sports i would think credit to him the hard to imagine there there's many built tougher than him he's he's an absolute uh treasure to root for he's the heart and soul of this team and you as our listeners are the heart and soul of this podcast thank you for listening don't forget to rate review subscribe follow us on twitter at celtics pride pod or individually at mike minkoff nba for Mike, at Coach Motenko. For Josh, I, Adam, am not on Twitter. If you're listening now, consider yourself a part of Celtics Pride on Celtics Blog.